Hi, I'm Sean Horn, founder and CEO of BeBell.ie. So what is BeBell? Well, it's a place of positivity. It's a place where you can be happy, be kind, be bold, feel supported and encouraged to fulfill your dreams. So come and join us on social media at BeBell underscore tribe or subscribe at BeBell.ie for future events and upcoming podcasts. With that in mind, welcome to series two. We've interviewed some amazing, inspirational women this series. So pop on your headphones, sit back, relax, and enjoy. So today I'm delighted to welcome the author, speaker, and leadership coach, Sally Helgeson. Welcome, Sally. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Well, I know that you're very, very busy. So um, I always say to people, when I started Be Bell, and especially when I started the second series, I had a what I call a be brave list people that I really wanted to get on and uh, you were on that list and so I was just over the moon when you came back to me so quickly to say that you've come and join us today my pleasure so be bell is all about the person and the life stories of these amazing women that I am so blessed to be able to chat to so Sally for you where did it all begin where were you born I was born in uh, St. Cloud, Minnesota. My dad was on the GI Bill right after World War II and was uh, in school there. And um, so it was a a humble beginning in a Quonset hut, which is where they, um, where student housing was, married housing, uh, after the war. And uh, we moved around a bit because both my parents were academics, so they would take different jobs. But most of my childhood was spent in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Lovely. And do you have any siblings? I do. I have four siblings. I have three sisters uh, who live in Milwaukee, uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, and Montpellier, France. And my brother lives in Grand Rapids, which is fairly near to where we grew up in Kalamazoo. That's lovely. And where do you lie in the sibling uh, Stature, I suppose. I'm second. I'm one of five, two, and I'm second in line. I was first. Okay. <laughs> Very influential position. Absolutely. Did you find that tough growing up? I know my older sister had to lead the way, so she always found that quite difficult. No, I, I loved it. I loved being the oldest. Um, I loved having a real co-leadership in the family. Anyone who grew up in a big family, especially some years ago, you know the role of the oldest child in, in helping with, with the family. And uh, I really enjoyed that. And I liked the leadership. And, you know, I also liked, um, I have to say, I like the fact that, that my younger siblings looked up to me a lot, which I think they do to an older person. So they, they're more likely than I am to remember you know, what, what outfit I was wearing when I went away to college. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. And when you were young then, and, you know, how did you find school? Did you enjoy school? Did you like the academic side? Where did you fall? I loved school. I loved both the academic and the social side. I went to a Catholic school, and uh, we were really top in sports, so I was a huge booster of our football and basketball team academics you know in a catholic school you have to study latin for four years 
And I really enjoyed that. And uh, it was just, it was a great experience. We had, and I think they were a big influence on my life. I know that a lot of people who went to Catholic schools did not have good experiences um, with the nuns, but uh, ours were, were really terrific, and they were so in the girls' corner. And, uh, you know, all those kinds of things combined to give you a certain confidence uh, in your ability to make your way in the world. Oh, absolutely. I think it's such a... A big, you know, everything starts there. And I, I mean, I was very sporty myself. And I think I, do, I certainly see in business when people have, have come through and been in teams um, that the leadership comes from that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a really important part. And, and one of the sad things about the lockdown we're in now was that, that college sports especially have been suspended. And I, I continue to follow Michigan State's basketball team very avidly. So that's been, you know, a little heartbreaking. Yeah. No, and it's, and it's a difficult time for everybody. And I think, you know, I do a lot of talking online now, like yourself, and I miss the atmosphere and the energy that you get from people and from a room. You know, Sean, it's been very interesting. I miss it too. I, uh, since How Women Rise came out, which was in April of 2018, I was on the road about 46 weeks a year. Prior to that, I mean, I took the year off to write the book, but prior to that, I was usually on the road about 25 to 30 weeks a year, but this was very, very intense. And I loved the crowds. Um, you know, air travel is not much fun these days, but I saw some really interesting places. I very, you know, I've gotten to work in London and Paris and Dubai and Hong Kong and Singapore and Kuala Lumpur and Sao Paulo and Bermuda, all kinds of wonderful places. And, um, and Australia, I've been maybe four times with work. But, um, and I, at first, I was really missing that intensity. But what's been interesting is my work has switched to virtual. I believe this is going to last for a while. Um, and that virtual work will, in part, replace the work we were doing with live audiences. And I'm finding some positives in it. I really am. I think that there's, it's possible to create a sense of intimacy with an audience that's missing when you're on a stage and there are 500 people. There's a lot of excitement to that. Yeah. There's a lot of fun. You know, there's a whole rock star thing, but, and this doesn't have that, but I get so much response when I do a program from people who, get in touch with me on LinkedIn or directly and say, oh, I really feel like I know you. And you didn't get that so much from being up on a stage. So I'm really enjoying that. Yeah, I think we've had the opportunity to see and see people speak that we might not have been able to have seen before as well. Um, yeah, yes. Which That's is right. fantastic. And, and so like, when, when you were at school, how, did you make the decision for college? What did you decide to do? Did you feel that you were starting your journey then? No. <laughs> I made my decision based on the worst criteria you could come up with. I went to Michigan State 
because its football team was the rival of my boyfriend's football team at Notre Dame. Okay. That was my reasoning. Now, this is how clueless this young lady was. Um, it was not the best school for me. I went from a Catholic school of about 110 people total to a school that had 38,000 students. Wow. So I felt quite lost and couldn't figure out. I signed up for classes that were at the same time, et cetera. I was really out of my depth. Um, but that was how my reasoning worked. And I, I, I have to say, I believe that if I'd, um, I graduated from high school in 1966, and I believe if I'd graduated even 10 years later, I would have had a much more direct kind of path. Um, but back in 1966, there was no talk among the girls of what we wanted to do with our lives. I remember one, one girl in our class, our graduating class, wanted to be a doctor. Uh, but that was it. Nobody else had any real, had much in mind. Now, I always knew I'd be a writer. I had no doubt about that. I was the teen page editor in our local newspaper uh, all through high school. I won a state journalism award um, for I don't quite remember what. But it, um, I knew that I could write. I wanted to write. And I didn't really think about what I was going to write. I think I sort of assumed that either I'd get a job at a newspaper or become an academic and write that way or be a novelist living, you know, in some sort of beatnik apartment in New York City. And uh, the latter was actually a little more what it looked like. But uh, it was pretty unplanned and unspecific. And we didn't get guidance from our guidance counselors at all then, the girls, about, about this. And uh, my parents were, were, you know, great supporters, but they were, you know, it's a big family. And yes. their idea of support was whatever you do, you'll succeed at. So there wasn't a tremendous amount of guidance there either. Yeah. And, and so you go to college, you discover yourself, I suppose. You know that at that point that you want to be a writer. How did that yes. come to fruition? How did the first book land? Oh, it took a while. You know, I came, I came to New York before I'd finished college. Uh, uh, my roommate's mother was moving to New York and had a big apartment, so she was kind of looking for a roommate. So I decided to go and uh, take a year, and the year turned into 35. I spent 35 <laughs> years in New York City. And so I, I went to New York, and the first job I got was as an advertising copywriter. I mean, I really took a job as an assistant to the copy pool, but I was pretty quickly writing copy in the advertising department, and it was pretty low level. I mean, I was doing like copy for light bulb filaments, but you know, I was you 19. And, uh, but it, it sort of put me in a, in a company with the writers, and then I applied for a job as an assistant for a columnist at a newspaper called The Village Voice, which at that time was very, very culturally influential. influential. It was one of the alternative uh, newspapers of the 60s, but it had actually been started by Norman Mailer in the 1950s. And... Um, 
And so I applied for a job as an assistant to a columnist there. And I got the job. And so I was writing his column. He was a columnist, but he couldn't write. So I was, you know, it was in his voice and it was his ideas and he was a brilliant guy, but he just didn't have the discipline to sit down and write. So I was writing his columns and that was very satisfying, but I decided I wanted to go back to college because it felt unfinished and it was never my expectation. So I went back to college in, uh, in New York City at City University and graduated and I was headed off to graduate school, but I decided that you know, it was a very exciting time in New York City when I was heading off to graduate school. It was the early 70s. There was a lot going on. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to put off graduate school for a few years and I'll just freelance write articles because that's something I knew I could do. I, I always knew I could write that I had that ability and that I had the discipline. It's not just ability. You really need to yeah. be able to sit down and do it. <laughs> and... Uh, so that's what I began doing. I began contributing freelance articles. I became a contributing editor at Harper's. And um, I knew it was also a way that I could travel uh, and get it paid for, which uh, was true. And so that's what I did for quite a while. I was a freelance article writer. And then my first book, which had, was the only book that really had nothing directly to do with women or leadership, was about independent oil producers in Texas. It's called Wildcatters. And I was down in Texas in the late 70s covering a murder trial. And I thought, this murderer is so boring. It's such a sleazy case. I really don't want much to do with it. So I, But his family had been in the oil business, so I started interviewing people in the oil business. And I got really interested. And that book was very important to me because it was the first exposure I'd ever had to business. And really, since I've been in women's leadership, my focus has been on women in organizations and women in business and women entrepreneurs. I knew nothing about business. My parents were academics. We were clueless as a family about, about uh, the business world or the corporate world. And so I became really interested in that. And then I transitioned to being a speechwriter because the uh, you know one of the one of the uh, small oil companies the guy came over and said hey little lady you think you could help me with this speech and uh, really that's how it yeah. happened so I said yeah, sure I can make it better than what you've got and um, so I I helped him out and then ended up doing some speech writing in in New York I went back to New York I was in Texas for about eighteen months had a blast and. Um, started doing that but it was really my book the female advantage came directly out of my experience as a speechwriter i was working okay. in new york for some really good companies really good companies but it was so apparent to me that they had no clue as to how to um value what women could bring i heard some of the best ideas, the most strategic ideas in the ladies' lounge, as they used to call it back then. Uh, and I thought, you know, there's got to be some way of companies recognizing what a gold mine they're sitting on in women, because women were coming into the workplace, but they were not in leadership positions or even on any remote track. And did you, so, uh, did you find that difficult at the time, though? Because obviously... You know, I mean, I presume we're talking sort of 70s, 
late 60s, yeah. 70s. So. Well, by the time I was writing speeches in corporate, it was the uh, early 80s, early and mid 80s. And yeah. were there many women doing what you were doing? No. No. So no. how did you find that, you know, stepping through that loop and, and letting people hear your voice? Well, I found that my voice was not uh, really valued or recognized at the level that I, I felt it could be. I kept getting, you know, sort of, when you work as a speechwriter, you work with some executives who can't say hello to six people without having, you know, a whole deck. Yeah. What we would call it today a deck, then it was transparencies. And so I kept getting these kind of low-level assignments, you know, uh, for the CEO who was greeting four people at breakfast. And I knew that I could write really interesting stuff, and I was pushing for it. And it was partly just the corporate structure. You know, my boss, who was the head of the speech writing pen, had no interest in in getting letting any of the younger speechwriters take uh, these plum assignments. He wanted them. So that's the reality of corporate life. But uh, it was also that there was no recognition that I could really contribute, that I had a lot of, you know, smarts. Yeah. And that I'd written a book on oil industry, et cetera, et cetera. So that was, it was both to help them recognize me and to help them recognize the other women uh, in the companies that I worked for. And so I had an idea about writing a book about what women could contribute to organizations rather than how they needed to change and adapt. And that was very counterintuitive at the time because in the 80s, there were a lot of books for women in the workplace, but they all of them had basically the same advice. You know, you're not gonna change it, leave your values at home. If it moves, salute it. If you have any aspirations to leadership, just study the men and do what they do. I mean, both academic and popular, that was, that was the idea. Companies were having, you know, classes to teach women to talk about football. It was just ridiculous. So I felt that we needed to focus on what women could contribute and that I wanted to study some of the best women leaders that were out there. There weren't many, but there were some and look at what they contributed and why that was important going forward uh, for organizations because it was clear that things were changing and when that first book came out how was it met you know what did people think at that time i suppose the female advantage women's ways of leadership it was published in 1990 and it was very successful and it was successful right away and I believe that it was successful because there was nothing that had taken that point of view. So it was quite counterintuitive. Uh, I got a lot of pushback. Um, I got pushback from people said, you're, who said, you're stereotyping women. You talk about women you know, being good at building strong relationships and, and communicating directly. And you know, that you're just reinforcing stereotypes about women. Women and men have no differences. That was you know, sort of the idea was we could only integrate the workforce, women and men, if we came from the point of view that they were exactly the same, which is absurd. Um, and then the other pushback I got, which is interesting in terms of how things have evolved, 
is that the primary skills I called out that I saw the women leaders I studied had in common. Again, ability to build strong relationships, to communicate directly rather than up and down a chain of command, a real hierarchical style of communicating, uh, putting themselves in the center of things rather than at the top and leading from there, uh, bringing information uh, and, and parts of themselves uh, that they had developed at home in the domestic world, personally, into the workplace and vice versa. That sort of facility in going back and forth. Uh, and then the tolerance, then the, the, the comfort with, as opposed to tolerance for diversity. Yes. That what came of having been outsiders and understanding both real value that outsiders can bring and the what condescending expectations feel like. And writing about those, I knew those were leadership strengths. And yet the pushback I got was, oh, those aren't leadership strengths. Those are soft strengths. Um, but I knew that, that that point of view was, was I'm not going to say incorrect, but was up for debate because everything was changing. The technology was evolving to support more networked and direct styles of communication and closer relationships between people and organizations and customers and various stakeholders, et cetera. And that, you know, obviously diversity was be going to become more of an issue. So comfort with that would be a real leadership advantage. So there were many ways. Yeah. And when you got those pushbacks, was it primarily by men or did you get those pushbacks from women too? I got the first pushback from women, you know, you're stereotyping us. Okay. And I got the second pushback mainly from men, you know, these aren't leadership uh, characteristics. You know, this is very nice, but these are soft skills. And so what steps did you take to make sure that you could turn those people around and let them understand what you were actually trying to achieve? I don't think I decided to address it directly. I just felt that the best um, response would be a successful book. Yeah. And at that time, when the book was published, I had a very good speechwriting job at IBM. And I realized that I needed to leave that job in order to full-time support the book. And that if I did that, I could stand a chance to make that book a success. Because what happened was, I believe that because it was the first book that had that point of view, right away, companies, groups wanted me to come in and talk to them, to talk to their women, to do little programs. I mean, I was getting $200 plus expenses. And I just decided I'll go everywhere because whatever I can do to support this book, support this message, will have benefit in the long run. And I made that decision with you know very little evidence but yeah. it was 30 years ago, and it, it, it did. Well, it's, and, and 30 years ago, it's, it was such a different message. Now I think, I certainly feel that that message has come through. All the things that you talk about are, you know, like when we talk about understanding diversity, you know, I do think women are unique at being able to, to do that so well, and, and we're very good at sharing um, and actually, I interviewed uh, Gina London recently, who is um, an executive coach as well. And we were talking about the difference where women will share a story about themselves and men have a block with that. 
Um, but the ones that do then realize how amazing it is because people resonate with that. People res resonate with it. And you know, it, it's been a very interesting thing because one of the things when I was a speechwriter, the executives would always go, give me a golf story, you know, give me a, 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 a football joke, whatever it was. They had this idea that you start a talk off showing you have a personality with some canned story that has nothing to do with you. Did you hear the one about that kind of deal? Um, or, or with some canned joke that the yes. speechwriter got out of a, a joke book. And that was how they showed their personality. And then the idea was after that, okay, now I can be as dull and as numbers oriented as I want to be. So I have plenty of experience dealing with that. And I agree with you. I mean, I think that one of the reasons I was able to make this a success and turn myself into a speaker, I mean, I had no background in public speaking or anything. Suddenly I'm getting invitations, come speak to, you know, 400 nurses, whatever. And uh, I think the reason I was able to do that is that I had seen so much what I thought didn't work and that I knew that authentic stories and my experience and what I'd seen and what the other women in the book had seen and what the other women that I've been talking to recently had seen, all that would, would create a much more dynamic uh, experience for audiences than, than the typical uh, canned speech, yeah. which was in, you know, in the ascendance. Absolutely. And what did your parents think when you started traveling and talking and speaking? <laughs> well, my, my mother, unfortunately, had died quite young and of uh, early cancer. She was in her 40s, so she was not there for this. My dad was absolutely thrilled. He was just thrilled about it. And... Um, you know, followed it and collected everything, every newspaper piece and, you know, took them to the grocery store and showed them to the cashier, whatever it was in a very random way. But, um, but he was a, a great supporter of that. And at the university, he had been a debate coach and at uh, Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo. And so he, he was very proud that he felt like I was carrying on a tradition of someone who was in the world of speaking. And it's so good that that first, well, your second book, but the first book, I think, to really take you in the direction, you know, it, when did you make the decision that another book needed to come? You know, I know it was a few years later. Oh, well, after The Female Advantage. I mean, with, with, with publishing Wildcatters, it was just kind of an idea while I was in Texas, something to keep me there right. and make my life more interesting and have a, have a lot of fun uh, and learn something, learn something about business. It turned out to serve me because I learned about business and then ended up as a speechwriter, which then led to the female advantage. But after the female advantage, what I saw was, I want to stay in this. I'm, I'm not looking for subject anymore. I want to stay in women's leadership. It is very rich. It's developing. It's changing. I can look at all kinds of things through this lens. So I had a phrase in The Female Advantage about the way women built networks, and I called it webs of inclusion. And it came from a woman who was profiled in The Female Advantage, Frances Hesselbein, who was then 
National Executive Director of the Girl Scouts, went on to become head of the Peter Drucker Foundation, a great influence and mentor for me, who I met while interviewing her for uh, the, the Female Advantage. I was lucky enough five years ago to go to 200th birthday parties for her in New York at the Four Seasons in the Rainbow Room. So she's quite a force, still around. But um, uh, she had used that phrase, so kind of, or, actually I used it, but she was talking about how she tried to lead in her, in her company by creating this sort of web. So she uh, sketched it out for me with pens and salt shakers and pepper mills on the table where we were having lunch. Uh, and uh, the Cosmopolitan Club. So I used that phrase in the book, Web of Inclusion, and my editor at Doubleday at the time said, you know, that's the, that's the title of your next book. So it just kind of went on from there. It was very apparent to me what my next subject, what I wanted for my next subject, and I've, I've stuck with that. And that's been yes. 30 years that I've been in, in women's leadership. And Things, so I've had a real front row seat to watch things change for women. Oh, absolutely. And is there one that stands out for you? Is there one of the books that you really went, okay, now, now they're getting it. Now, now is the time. Oh, well, this one, How Women Rise. Yeah. Uh, I had a book that I really liked called Thriving in 24-7. Yeah. Uh, about, it was like the new, I don't remember, six strategies for taming the new world of work. and. It, but it had a pub date of, of uh, September 15th, 2001. So everything then just got blown out of the water and it was quite disappointing. Uh, but it, really this book, How Women Rise, it has been a shift for me, partly because my co-author Marshall Goldsmith is just a marketing genius and that gave such a push to the book. But I think that what I really learned from this book and that will be of influence to me going forward, I think the reason this book has been so successful and gotten so much attention and been really an international bestseller, bestseller in Japan, we've sold rights in I think 17 or 18 countries, you know, places like Mongolia and Indonesia, who knew Vietnam, and um, I think because it is very, very practical and has real solutions that people can use. And I never want to write a book that isn't very practical for women and for men to be able to use again. And I think that in the past, some of my books were great ideas. You know, they were observations about interesting things, but they didn't say, here's this here are some solutions. Here are some things you can do. All of my books, I've done workshops on them. And this one was by far the easiest to develop into a workshop too. But I think in this one, you're given us tools. And I think that's what so many of us need. Yeah, exactly. That's the, that's the language. So um, tools, takeaways, things that they can act on. So, so I am... Um, you know, I've been very, very satisfied with this experience. It's been a wonderful one, even yeah. virtually. No, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I heard about the book, um, it was probably 18 months, two years ago, and it hadn't been out long. And I work with another group of girls called um, Up She Rises, 
Um, and, uh-huh. and again, it's, we do a lot of talks, um, mostly entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, SMEs. And it was when that book came out, we were like, this is like the perfect book. Like it's, it gives people tools and that's what people are always looking for. They, they yeah. are starting to understand that, but I love the fact that we're learning from each other all the time. It's so important. And this book is a demonstration of that because on one hand, we use Marshall's template, what got you here won't get you there, that insight he had that the same behaviors that serve you earlier in your career can be a problem going forward. I love the book, but felt that much of what he talked about didn't specifically relate to women, which is why I went to him and said, let's, let's collaborate, use this model but address women. So I think that's one of the things, but I think that the hidden strength of this book is that with the exception of one story, so we used his template and he had one great story, but the other 11 stories in the book all come from workshops or programs that I delivered. So they're all real world, how real women encountered, thought about, dealt with and overcame challenging situations and i think that comes through that that reality and those were not people i went out looking for i just happen to keep really good notes when i do a workshop uh, or moderate a panel and a lot of information came from that yeah no it's it's amazing and what do you use i mean obviously we're talking about work life here and tools there but those tools obviously can be used very much in on our personal lives. What do you take from those um, outside of that work environment? Like what's important to you in your time? Well, I think there are three habits in that book that are work, ha- that are, I, I focus on the workplace. That's, because yeah. I'm focused on women's leadership uh, and helping women achieve their full potential as leaders. But there are three habits in there that when you exhibit them at work, you probably exhibit them at home and in your personal life. And those are perfectionism, the disease to please, and rumination. So feeling like you have to do everything perfectly, even if it's just how you arrange the olives on top of a piece of chicken at night after an incredibly busy day. Uh, disease to please has a lot to do with boundaries. And this is one I find particularly when women cannot set boundaries at work, they usually can't set them at home either. And they're just, you know, always wanting to keep up. You know, they have a busy job, but they're up at three o'clock in the morning sewing a Halloween costume for their kids because the family next door, the mother doesn't work and is making the Halloween costumes rather than buying them so So this woman wants to feel like she can please her kids by doing this, even though it's, it it makes no sense in her life. And um, so that's, that's common. And then the rumination, which is feeling bad anytime you make a mistake, anytime you forget to say something you should have said or say something you afterwards feel was not the best thing to say, and just really giving yourself a hard time on that. So those are the three habits I think that are most likely to also cause personal disturbances and roadblocks and um, at home as well as at work. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I will always say uh, celebrate progress rather than perfection because 
yeah, I think I'm at that age now where I'm quite happy with my lot. Um, and and yeah, the, the problem with people, the inner voice and not being able to say no when it actually would benefit both parties to do so is really difficult, I think, for women. Um, and I think we are definitely getting better at it. Um, but some of us struggle a little bit more than others. Yes, and we need support to do that. And that's the other thing that is, I always mention every time I talk about how women rise is the big takeaway, the big lesson is when you identify something that gets in your way, don't try to remedy it alone. Yeah. Work with a peer work with a coach, work with a peer coach, work on the fly with an accountability partner and list somebody in a situation in the moment. Hey, you know, I'm trying to get more concise in my presentations. Um, you're really good at it. Do you have any advice for me? Is there anything you do to prepare? Um, I'm really working with trying to be more concise in my presentations. Too much is one of the habits in the book. Going into this meeting, could you just listen to me and let me know if there's a way I could have been more concise? Whatever that is, whatever you're working on, enlist others to help you. You'll have a much higher chance of success. You'll have a much higher chance of being recognized as someone who is changing because you're letting other people know instead of expecting them to spontaneously notice and value that you're changing. Uh, and uh, and you just won't feel as isolated and alone. And that's been one thing that has hindered women in the workplace. Um, and that's getting a lot better. Yeah. No, it's amazing. And um, I'm actually going to go back and I, I want to read. I was reading up on Thriving 24-7. And I want to go back now after we've spoken about it anyway, just to go back and have a read of that. Um, but in, in your personal life, um, like, how do you balance? You work very hard. I suppose everybody's always looking for that, for that goal of balance and, and words like, you know, can we really have it all? I don't know if you need to have it all. And um, certainly now I've learned an awful lot over the last four months of what is important to us. Um, but how do you balance your work life and, and your business life? Well, I want to say that I don't have any children, so that has been much less difficult for me than for women who have children, I find. And uh, it wasn't necessarily a choice. It was, I wasn't in the right situation at the right time. And when I met my husband, uh, he was he's about seven years younger than I am, but I think I was... 43 at the time that I met him and the female advantage had just been out about a year or two and I was traveling a lot with that and I really had to think about it because I thought you know if he's an artist and um, if we had children I'd have to put aside what I was doing to yeah. promote the female advantage and so I had to let him know that. I said, you know, I wish I'd met you five or six years before, but I'm almost 45. And I finally really found what I want to do, love doing, and need to be doing. And I want to stay all in with it. So if you really want to have children, it's it's probably not best with me. You know, he was 30 
six or 37, yeah. had plenty of choices. So I, that was one of the hardest conversations I've ever had because the reason it was so hard wasn't just saying that to him, but it was the first time that I looked at the idea that I probably wasn't going to have children. It was always sort of in the back of my mind, but I wasn't doing anything about yeah. it. So I made that decision, and I think it was the right decision for me. I will. I know it was the right decision for me. You've always and been at peace with that decision. Yes, I was at peace with it, and I was at peace with it because I had to make it and I had to articulate it. And it had never occurred to me before I had that conversation with him that I wouldn't have children. I always just assumed it. I came from a happy family. I. I knew the joys of family life. I love kids and crazy about babies. You can't get me away from them when one's in the room. But uh, but I knew it was the right thing. And it, it's probably a lonelier path than many people would be comfortable with. But, um, but it hasn't been that much of an issue for me. And my husband has always been on board with my traveling and doing my work. And he's very self-sufficient. Again, he didn't get married till it was, well, we waited 10 years till we got married. So I, I think I was 52 and he was 46. Yeah. So we both had a long, you know, experience of being self-sufficient. I feel like we're replicated here. My husband is an artist. He's a few years younger uh -huh. than me. We did try for children for a decade, but it wasn't for us. It didn't happen. And, um, and, and we you know, we waited 11 years to get married. So very similar <laughs> situation. <laughs> Absolutely. He's an artist as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's mad. And, and I have to ask this question because I get asked this quite a lot. Um, you know, I work very hard and, and a lot of women, I would meet a lot of women that don't have children and not, again, not probably because they haven't tried to have children. Um, but they feel that they're treated differently to people with children in the workplace, which is going to happen. Um, and and I, I, I never kind of know how to bridge that for them uh, because I work for myself and have done for a long time. Yes, uh, I get asked a lot of those questions too. But, you know, in my life, what has worked for me one of the most important things I ever read was in the old self-help book, um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People uh, by Stephen Covey. And he had a wonderful image in there. He said, you will be effective in life the more that your circle of concern matches your circle of control. So as the more that you focus your attention on what you can control and let go of what you can't control, of what may concern you, but you can't control it, the more effective you will be. So that kind of thinking, I don't think, you know, this person's getting more than I am. And I don't think it's particularly constructive. Yeah. And with the one of the reasons I love How Women Rise is because it is only about what you can control. There are structural and cultural barriers that continue to hold women back. But by focusing on habits and behaviors 
the idea is not blaming women. Yes. It's saying, you know, this is what you can control about your career. This is what you can control that can make your experience of work at better and open up possibilities and futures. So um, that's what I try to focus on. If, if your boss is treating you differently because you do or don't have children or whatever, it's a concern, but can you control it? And if you can't control it, let it go yeah. because otherwise it's going to eat away at you and it's going to undermine your effectiveness. Agreed. Agreed. So what is next, Sally? What, what comes now? Well, the main thing I'm doing now, um, March 10th, everything changed. Um, I had a very, very busy 2020. I was going to Dubai and Saudi Arabia and Zurich and Kuala Lumpur and Hong Kong and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. At Japan again, which is one of my favorite places to go and work and London, it was all canceled. Everything was canceled. And I just took sort of a month to absorb what had happened. It's a huge financial hit, as it was for many people. And also just, what am I going to do? So really, my focus this year is trying to figure out all the ways I can bring attention to my work in a virtual environment. And that's going pretty well, but it's a learning curve for me. I'm not very technologically adept and actually have zero interest in being so. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, I believe in doing what you're good at, staying away from the other stuff. But my tech support guy can't come to my house, so it's hard. Uh, but it's, that's what I'm really focused on now. I want to do a book on women and men working together. I'm not sure exactly what the angle would be. We're, the environment we're in keeps changing very rapidly uh, in terms of you know, lockdown, pandemic, when people go back to work, who's working from home, who's not, what the implications of that are, looking at diversity more broadly in terms of equity and justice. All those things are creating a tumultuous environment. And so I'm, I'm holding back a little bit as I watch how that evolves before yes. I move forward with another book. But, but really switching over to virtual and figuring out what kinds of lights I need, what kind of camera, all that stuff. That's keeping me busy for right now and, and getting clients um, to do yeah. virtual programs for, which is work, finally working quite well. Yeah, brilliant. Sally, I look forward to that book. And I tell you, um, I've been doing the Bebel podcast for about a year and spoken to some amazing women. And during lockdown, I decided to do a, a very short uh, podcast called Brainstorm in the Teacup. And I actually, for the first time, interviewed men. And I learned so much and I felt, and they all said to me, it's about time, Sean, that you spoke to us. And I was like, <laughs> I really enjoyed it. And I'm, I'm going to keep doing it because, you know, sure. I think, I think the time is right. Um, yes, I agree with that. And that's what I look forward to. I, I started a version of this book about five years ago and I spent some time interviewing some male colleagues and coaches, then Reed Marshall, spent a lot of time with Tom Peters, with, you know, uh, Carlos Marin, various, and it was so much fun. So again, I'm looking forward 
like you to getting back to that. Yeah, absolutely. So Sally, we always like to finish off with a question from your predecessors. So I have this little jar that people have given me some questions. So I'm just going to pull one. Oh, okay. This is, this is a nice light one to finish off. Uh, the perfect meal. What would your starter, <laughs> main course and dessert be? Okay. Uh, the perfect meal. My perfect meal would be probably in Rome. <laughs> oh. um, and the starter would be stuffed zucchini blossoms. Beautiful. The way they do them there. And next I would have fried artichoke hearts the way they do them in Rome, the Jewish style they call it. And then I would have pasta alla matriciana with uh, guanciale, which is pork jowl, so good. And then for dessert, I would just have a bowl of perfect cherries. Oh, fabulous. Oh, and you're making me want to go to Rome again now. Um, no, I'm making myself want to go to Rome again. It's <laughs> top of my list, I have to say. But um, the last question then is the best piece of advice that you were ever given? Oh, my goodness. I've been given so much good advice. But what immediately springs to mind is... Marshall and I were doing a program for eBay on March 6th. So it was the last, it was the second to last program I did. And it was apparent what was coming. I was staying in the San Jose Marriott. I was one of six people <laughs> in the one of the largest hotels in California. So it was apparent what was coming. And after we did our program, I was saying goodbye to him. He was going to the airport. I had to go up to uh, Palo Alto. And he said, Sally, use this time, use it well, build your brand, stay connected, and be real. And I have to say, I mean, that's a very recent piece of advice, but I, I wrote it down. I reviewed it in the, the, the car service that brought me up to Palo Alto. I made a sign on my wall and my desk at home, and I have done that. I followed it, and it has served me beautifully. It really has. Sally, I can't thank you enough. I could talk to you all day, to be honest. I, I know you're busy. Really, really appreciate your time. You're amazing. I can't wait to delve into some more of your books. And um, I hope to speak to you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.